We've been looking at Saul, the, um, the first king of the people of God, and I hope you found it challenging, as I have. We've seen that Jesus is a much better king, and the good news is he is our king today. If you're a believer in Jesus, he is your king today. But we've also seen how wrong the deputies of Jesus can go. So the current leaders of the people of God, people like me at the level of a single church and then bishops and network leaders at the level of a whole country. At the heart of today's long chapter is verse 22 and 23. So look down at those, please. And there are three different sorts of going wrong in those verses. I wonder how would we react if our church leaders got into any of these. Verse 23, it talks about divination and idolatry. That's the the full package of pagan worship. Now, I think we'd see that as very serious if um, the CEO of the Evangelical Alliance began worshipping Ganesh at the Hindu temple in Neesden. We'd think it was time for him to resign. Very serious. Verse 23 also talks about arrogance and rebellion. So the the sin of pride. For a leader, the sin of thinking that that you're more important to the church than God, and directing the loyalty and worship of a church to yourself rather than to God. And we've seen that, arrogance, that's really what 1 and 2 Samuel are all about. Three poems at the start, the middle and the end, all about how God will bring down the proud and lift up the humble. But maybe we tend to think that arrogance is just the price you pay for some of the leadership qualities or teaching gifts that we think we need. Well, I hope our weeks in 1 Samuel are curing us of that. Arrogance and rebellion is terrible for the leader, because God hates it, and unsafe for the people, because it leads to harm and abuse. But verse 23 also talks about a third level. It says, you have rejected the word of the Lord, as in it talks about disobedience, which has been in focus for the last few weeks. And we've said that we normally think disobedience can be fine. Um, Yes, certain amount in certain circumstances by a certain kind of person, especially for senior leaders. How else are they supposed to get the business of leadership done? if they don't cut a few corners and adapt to challenging circumstances. But verse 23 is arguing that those three levels are really the same thing, or are, um, yeah, are linked rings on the same enslaving chain. This is a, a huge chapter. This morning, we are launching the search for King David, which means we're launching the search for King Jesus, And the search for our perfect king begins in the ruins of Saul's failure. But the ruins aren't really what we would have expected at the beginning. Um, Tobias described him as the mixture, the mixture king, part good, part bad. And we've said compared to some of the really bad later kings, Saul, he's hardly broken sweat on disobedience. See, in today's chapter, Saul wins a great victory for God's people. He does a lot of obeying God, and he says so twice. There's even a successful building project and lots of religious offerings to God. Saul has no doubt that this time, Samuel will be pleased with him. Look at verse 13. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you! I have carried out the Lord's instructions. 
And yet this is the moment of total and final rejection. Verse 28, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and he has given it to one of your neighbours, to one better than you. So he, he does so much good and yet is rejected as king. And the chapter, though, is careful to stress that God, he's not having a bad day or overreacting or flying off the handle. That's the kind of way human beings make decisions. No, verse 29, he who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. If you remember chapter 13, the story there was all about the delays. And in chapter 15, it's all about partial Partial rather than full. So point number one, partial obedience. That's the first 23 verses. So 15 verse one, Saul is God's king. So God gives him a command. He is to attack and totally destroy the Amalekites, men, women, children, infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. That's the command. And Saul obeys it in part, partial obedience. Now, before we go further, I want to give a few minutes to an issue that I'm expecting people to want to talk about afterwards and uh, those in the building to want to ask me about afterwards. And that is the fact that God here commands the destruction of an entire group of people in verse 3. And some of you may immediately have thought of the word genocide. Um, And that is a horrific thing to find in the pages of our Bibles. And as modern readers, we may feel sympathy with Saul because he's ordered to do something like that. Though I don't actually think there's any sign that he cared about the men, women and children part of this. He actually kills everyone except for the man with the title who he could probably get a ransom for. But more strongly, I've met people who feel horror about God about the God who would command anything like this. Reactions I've I've read on this include, I certainly wouldn't want to put my trust in the deity in this verse, or um, this God is a horrible, psychopathic, little tribal God. So what I want to do before we get into the passage properly, I want to say a few things that I hope will help us understand the verse better. Um, They don't take away that emotional reaction in me, uh, but they help me trust God even after what is in this verse. So I've got five comments on verse three. First, this is spoken to Old Testament Israel. And ever since Jesus came in 33 AD, there has been no justification for violence by any of the people of God on behalf of God. It is forbidden. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. And he says, my kingdom is not of this world. There are are no borders to defend. And God calls Christians to die rather than use violence in his name. Second, um, this is one of a limited number of texts that call for this kind of total destruction. They belong to one period of Israel's history only. Uh, This isn't how God tells them to conduct war normally. Um, Actually, there are lots of rules about good treatment of those who surrender and of captives and even of the trees around a city that you're at war with. But here, when the people are first established in the land, they are told to totally destroy the people who are living there already. Third, 
before we write off God and his people as um, incomprehensibly evil, it's worth noticing that we are similar, um, meaning this country. Don't, don't know where you are in the world, but in this country, uh, we are not kept safe by our enormous RAF or by our many, many aircraft carriers of the Navy or even by our brave soldiers. We have been kept safe from invasion since 1952 by our nuclear deterrent. Um, in other words, we are kept safe and powerful in the world by the threat of massive genocide, even on the other side of the world at the push of a button. Fourth, um, the reason given by God here, it's not race hatred, it's not greed for land, it is his judgment. It's the action of a, a judge in court. You can see that in verse 18, the Amalekites are to be destroyed because they are wicked. And actually that is a, a long-standing verdict. So you might like to look up later Exodus 17 and Deuteronomy 25. This verdict, it comes from the time when Israel was escaping from Egypt and Amalek attacked the stragglers. Now you, you may or may not think that the punishment fits the crime, but you can see the crime was serious attacking, escaping refugees as they fled from slavery and attacking the weakest and most vulnerable in particular. And, and actually, this isn't only about their past behavior. Verse 33, Samuel says he kills Agag because Agag has made many women childless. And then fifth, I don't expect that all of that will make much difference emotionally. I hope it will help, but it doesn't make much difference to me emotionally. But partly that is because we struggle with the idea of God's judgment generally. This is really the same question as why does Jesus talk so much about judgment and hell? Because Jesus tells us about a future day of judgment on all, man, woman, and child, a total destruction of everybody. And the Old Testament material, including this chapter, it helps us Understand God doesn't do that in the way a human being would. He isn't controlled by his emotions, but also his judgments are real and cannot be avoided or negotiated. Um, Genesis 15 may also be a helpful place to look, where God says, no, I can't give Abraham, I can't give you the promised land yet, because the people living there don't yet deserve the judgment that is their removal. And actually, if we think that human beings like us are basically good, and we think that the way we treat God doesn't matter very much, and we think that in general we're always able to buy our way out of any punishment, well, we will find something deeply unsettling about a, a judgment that waits 400 years until exactly the point of greatest fairness, and then falls with no possibility of changing God's mind. Um, I'd encourage you to find uh, Christians you could talk to about this in a church local to you to take that question further. Um, I hope that's been helpful. What I want to do now is to sort of study the chapter on its own terms. Uh, the first readers, they would not have thought God was asking Saul to do something wrong in verse 3. Um, but there are still reasons to feel sympathy for Saul's disobedience, just not that reason. So pick it up in verse 4. He's given a command and he obeys it partially. Um, in fact, you might say he does nearly all of it. 
certainly all the difficult bits. So he wins a major victory, he kills all the people except King Agag, and that's verse 8, and then next verse, verse 9, he destroys all the animals that were despised or weak, but they were unwilling to destroy everything that was good, the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs. And Saul, we said, he's so confident he's obeyed that he comes bursting out to meet Samuel. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Except that we already know God disagrees. So look back to the night before and verse 10 and 11. God regrets making Saul king. Why? Because Saul has turned away from me. How? He has not carried out my instructions. Um, It's the same as chapter 13. God really meant it about the obedience thing. God is the great king. When he speaks, it's an order from the creator. And we saw last week that Saul is totally on board with that model. Um, It's how Saul feels about his own orders as the king of Israel. When Saul speaks, he expects to be obeyed, even if the order is stupid and the, the breach understandable and the punishment crazy. And God has that model. God wasn't asking Saul to do some of his instructions or to land in the same kind of area, or to see what he could do with a couple of suggestions. He was asked to obey everything, all of the time. That's in fact the only kind of king who could be safe for God's people. And Samuel's distress is there in verse 11. He's angry and he's crying all night. Sorrow for Paul, for Saul, and sorrow for the people, for the future, and what this must mean. And then he meets Saul grinning from ear to ear. I've kept every single instruction. No rules were broken here. So verse 14 is brilliant political satire. Have you? Have you kept all the instructions? Why can I hear meh, meh, or moo? And what comes next? It's familiar from chapter 13, but worse, I think, because Saul is immediately in with the excuses and the blame. And there's three prongs to this piece of defense barrister action. Verse 15, first, um, it was the soldiers. How was I supposed to stop soldiers from keeping the plunder? Second, uh, it was for a good purpose. We only kept them to sacrifice to God. And third, we totally destroyed the rest. Um, I.e., wasn't me, didn't do it. Uh, I had your best interests in mind. Um, You're being unreasonable and why are we bothered? And Samuel just says, enough. And the reply has three prongs too. Verse 17. First, you used to be too small to stop soldiers from plundering, but that changed when God made you king. And actually, we saw last week, um, twice, Saul is able to stop soldiers from eating. So that the defense there, it's actually a total failure to take responsibility. It's just like Eli earlier in the book. Um, Eli wasn't actually at the mercy of his sons, and you, Saul, you are not at the mercy of your soldiers. You're in charge. Um, Second, verse 18, the instruction from God was totally clear. There is no way you can claim to have obeyed God. And third, verse 19, God is not buying your claims of good intentions and motives. It hasn't slipped God's attention that the the animals you kept are the best ones, the good ones, the fat ones. God understands what is going on in Saul's heart. Why did you pounce on the plunder? And Saul is stubborn. Um, We've seen him double down before. I think this here is called um, brazen out the inquiry in political terms. Verse 20, I did obey. I went on the mission. I completely destroyed them and brought back their king. 
Do you see what he did there? Uh, bringing back the king, that was bad, but he makes it sound good. Then verse 21, the soldiers did something bad, not me. And all we've done, sorry, I mean, all they've done is reinterpret the command. Totally destroyed or totally devoted. What's the difference? There's no greed here. We're all about sacrifice. They're going to get destroyed on God's altar. And this is an object lesson in how leaders, particularly church leaders, behave when challenged, even when caught red-handed. So here it's greed, but it says that it is obedience, says it's someone else's fault, and says it was all for God anyway. And again and again, in money, sex, and power, those have tended to be the areas where leaders harm people. Well, here's money and power. Uh, And all over the world, sadly, you could find church leaders insisting on uh, high pay or conditions that look a lot like greed. And you can hear them saying, that's what God wants. And and talking about how, I don't know, the private jet honours God. And that's the point at which Samuel gives us verse 22 and 23. It's just a, a devastating unpicking of Saul's whole bundle of excuses. And it's a shock to us, I think, who tend to see obedience as negotiable and disobedience as mostly fine. So verse 22 addresses the sacrifices point. Yep, sacrifices are good. And in the Old Testament, they are all about expressing repentance for sin and the hope that God would transfer your very real guilt onto something else so that the terrible judgment of God's anger could fall elsewhere and not on you. But never, sacrifices never were some kind of alternative to obedience. Saul is hoping that he can keep loads of sheep and cattle for himself, despite God's command, as long as God gets his cut in the sacrifices. The only thing missing here is the brown paper envelope. No, to obey is better than sacrifice doesn't matter how many churches you can show me that you've built or how many hours you've given to the Lord. God wants to know whether you will obey him. And verse 23 tells us why. It's because disobedience is really rebellion and arrogance. Really, Saul has decided that Saul is high king and God is somewhere further down. It's true every time a Christian disobeys God. And the reality of our failure, that is all over the New Testament. But the question here is about the the model you're operating as a whole. Um, Are we willing to go along with God when it makes sense to us, when it seems reasonable, when it fits in with our plan for our life? Partial obedience. Or are we committed to doing what God commands, even when we hate it, and don't understand it. You see, the question is really about whether God is God to you or not and to me. And you can have rebels who actually do a lot of obedience. I think some of us are just conditioned to be quite socially compliant people a lot of the time, and we don't swear and get angry, and we don't fight and we don't steal. And that doesn't actually tell you anything about who we think God is. We'd be like that whether or not God commanded those things. And you can also have genuinely humble servants of God who find it really hard to obey and battle with sin and failure and weep at how they didn't obey and wish they did. And we need to remember that Saul, he's not just the king. 
He is the specific kind of king that the people asked for. His name, it literally means asked for. He's missed a special request. And they asked for a king just like all the other nations so as to make them like all the other nations. He's modeling the sin of humanity. That's what he was chosen for. But he's doing it in the clothes of God's champion and servant. And it really matters because rebellion against God, it's not just a sin, It is the sin. It's the one from the garden in Genesis 3. And verse 23 is saying you might as well go all the way and find a different God with divination and statues and idolatry. And I think we just need to let that land for a second. Saul's great victory over the enemies of God, the equivalent, I don't know, of planting a new church in every town in the world he might as well worship Baal or Zeus or Ganesh. What leaders achieve for God's people does not give us a free pass on obedience to God. Verse 23, what God cannot have for Israel is a human king who is a rival God to God. And so Saul has to go because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has rejected you as king. And finally, it seems the message does get through to Saul that something serious is going on. And there's a change of tone. He says, I have sinned, verse 24, which looks great. But point two, point two is about partial repentance. And that's verses 24 to 35. Look down at Saul. Um, Our narrator gives us just so much of Saul in this book. I think he's one of the most psychologically developed characters in the whole Bible. And here this morning, he has three tries at repentance. Verse 24, there's a speech. Verse 27, there's an action. And verse 30, there's a speech again. And he is still the mixture king. There's still good and bad here. So on the good side, he acknowledges he has sinned. Verse 24, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instruction. So of the three things they spoke about, that was item one. Uh, It's interesting that he assumes Samuel needs to go in the line as well, as if Samuel cares about Samuel's authority as well as God. That's how Saul is, so he assumes Samuel must be like that too. But at least, yep, he accepts he's wrong. Same in verse 30, I have sinned. But you remember the other two lines on the charge sheet, the blaming other people and the greed? Well, verse 24, I was afraid of the men. And so I gave in to them. He's still blaming them. They're rebels and pagans, the lot of them. And he's, do you see, he's redefined his sin very carefully. His sin is that he was too fearful, too quick to give way, too humble, you might say. I'm so sorry I was so humble. And there's nothing at all here about greed, which is the motive that God has read clearly in his heart. And this conversation is not a negotiation at work. This is the king of Israel speaking to the prophet of Israel about what the God of Israel has said about his heart. And deflection is not going to work. And then look at his request, verse 25. So yes, he wants forgiveness, but that isn't all that he wants. It says, now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. And because he tries three times we get to see which of the elements of what he wants are really driving him. And it it isn't the forgiveness, really. It isn't his relationship with God. It's actually all about 
come back with me. Um, the grabbing of the robe, that's about physically preventing the prophet from walking away. And then verse 30, um, please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. See, this is about Saul's honor. Key word in 1 Samuel, same word as glory. What Saul needs is a piece of political theater. Come down with me as if nothing has happened so that I can go on being king. Make it look to the elders as if nothing bad has happened. Now, what do you think? I I don't know how people who don't believe in God explain the Bible. And this was written a thousand years before the birth of Christ. But the depth of understanding of human nature here um, and the relevance of it, this and what Saul does, this is straight out of the playbook that we've seen in the abuse scandals among church leaders over the last few years. Minimize, deny, bluster, blame, whataboutery, and point to your achievements, and then sorrow without repentance, sorry that I've been caught, and begging, not for restoration or a chance to put things right, but for the chance to keep your reputation. Can we not make it look as if I resigned? And I don't know what we make of the two um, codas at the end of the story. See, it is the wrong thing to ask for, but Samuel does give Saul his request. Verse 31, he does go back with him. But Samuel also makes sure that God's command is obeyed and justice is done, much to Agag's surprise. Verse 33. But then Samuel never sees Saul again. Verse 35. And that is not just the breaking of a mentor-friend relationship, that the king of God's people is now cut off from access to the word of God from the prophet of God. And we were told in chapter 12, the word of God is the only thing the king of Israel has going for him. So are we left in hopeless despair? Uh, We need a king who obeys God all the time. We need church leaders who obey God all the time, which just doesn't seem very likely. Leaders who are not proud and are not rebels. And that's where our theme through the entire service is so wonderful. We've been thinking about the royal obedience of the Lord Jesus. Jesus, he is unique um, in ways that probably we don't value very highly. We've been talking about them for a few weeks. I wonder if they're raising, rising in our hearts. He is uniquely submissive to the authority of his heavenly father uniquely obedient as a man to the commands of God. Jesus, he didn't need to bargain away some of submission and obedience in order to be a good leader or win the victory for his people. He didn't need to compromise in order to move forward and get things done. He didn't feel the need to assert his rights and his status in order to be taken seriously in order to lead. Jesus provides a totally different model of leadership to everything that we see in the wider world. Jesus is a king unlike the other nations, and he's unique and he's glorious in his 100% consistent integrity in that area, while also being 100% successful in his leadership. And he, wonderfully, challengingly, annoyingly, calls his under-shepherds to be servant leaders too. And the, the dangers that Saul illustrates are dangerous when we meet them in church. They need to be challenged and, and brought into the light. 
And if serious, people may need to leave leadership or may need to be helped to change how they lead into the likeness of the true king. And this, this is the settled will and plan of God. And there's a wonderful play on words in verse 29, and we'll finish with this. Um, Because the, the word for change his mind in verse 29 is the same as the word for regret in verse 11 and verse 35. So on the face of it, God who never regrets, regrets making Saul king. And we're being reminded that God's approach to all of this is not like the approach of a human being. Whether it's Saul, whether it's the Amalekites or any of us, he he doesn't make judgments in the heat of the moment or under the control of his emotions. Uh, Saul, there's no way Saul can do a deal with him to get him to change his mind. And that is true, that God-like rather than human-like approach of the two really big decisions of God that are announced in this chapter. Ever since chapter 2, we've known that God will have his king. And we've known that God's king can only be someone chosen by God and humble before God. And ever since chapter 8, we've known that the people are not safe with a king like all the other nations who won't obey God's word. And God has not changed his mind on those things. Um, This is exactly what Samuel laid out to the people and to Saul in chapter 8, chapter 10, and chapter 12. And in the eternal purposes of God, the name of both David and his descendant Jesus have been written since before the creation of the world. But the, the settled, not human Lord, is also expressed here in terms of great compassion and sorrow for his people. Saul, he is not safe for them, so he must be removed. And Samuel's very human night of crying finds its perfect divine analogue in uh, God saying, I regret that I've made Saul king. Um, God is uniquely integrated, heart and mind and decisions. And for us, the promises of God, they are not under threat. Saul's actions can't stop them, nor can any imperfect human leader today. God will provide David and then Jesus, who is everything we need in his obedience and his deliverance. And the, the very nature of the unchanging God, that is the bedrock we rely on for the final yes to all the promises on the day when Jesus returns uh, to save and judge um, in the case of every single human being. So let's pray for trust in that Lord. Our Father, thank you that your promises stand and you do not change your mind and that you have your humble king on the throne and that one day all the world will see Help us to recognize him, to follow him, to serve him, the Lord Jesus. And we pray particularly for our churches, that leaders would model themselves on him, that you would help, you would bring repentance, you'd bring restoration, and you would grant protection from all sinful harm. We ask in the name of your son. Amen.